Good morning, church. Good morning. Let's grab our books, our Bibles. Let's turn to the very last book in our Bible, the book of Revelation. We'll continue on in the book of Revelation. We'll be looking this morning at the fourth letter of Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor, the church of Thyatira, starting in verse 18. So uh, let's begin in verse 18. We're going to read through the entire section through the end of chapter 2. Let's read the word of the Lord together. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then, all the churches will know that I am He who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's holy and sacred word. Church, would you pray with me before we dive into our sermon? Let's pray together. O God of glory and honor, we worship you this morning because of who you are, because you are a God of sovereign and limitless power, that you are a God of blazing holiness and complete purity, that you are a God of righteous vindication, and that you are a just judge. And yet you, in your kindness, show us discipline. We praise you because of your unfailing and enduring and very patient love towards us. We thank you that you speak to your church through your spirit and the words of your son this morning, even words of rebuke and repentance. And that you love us enough to not tolerate our sin and our folly. 
but to confront us in our wickedness, that we might rejoice in the truth as you rejoice in the truth. Father, we thank you that your love is not arrogant or proud, that you always have our best interests in mind, even when we think we know what is best for us. You are a patient God with our meager, at times, progress. And you are kind to us, even in the midst of our recurring failures. And you commend in your word. You desire that we, um, as Peter says, crave pure spiritual milk in the word so that we might grow up into our salvation, doing more now than we did at first. And so, Lord, we, te- we would ask... We would ask that you would teach us to love the things that you love and to hate the things that you hate. Gracious Father, you always protect us, you always preserve us, you trust, uh, you cause us, you give us all sorts of reasons to trust in you, and we believe that you will supply us with a firm cause for hope. You always keep us in the love of your Son, and we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people set together. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning with a uh, very short and simple quotation from an article in Christianity Today. And uh, this article, oh, it's about 14 or 15 years old now. It was written at the turn of the century and the turn of the millennium. But I think it is still very much accurate and true. Uh, It speaks to our culture today. It speaks in particular to the sin, the, the sin that our world, that our culture believes to be the most heinous, if you will. And this is the quote. Speaking of this particular sin, Christianity Today writes, It is the only serious sin left. Even murder has its mitigating factors, but not this one. It is the pariah sin, the one that makes you untouchable without need for explanation. The sin is, I'm going to pause for dramatic effect, what is that sin? The author writes, the sin is intolerance. Intolerance. He goes on to say, and the greatest sinners in the late 20th century America is the evangelical fundamentalist Christian church. He's writing about us. He says, America is sick of intolerant people, and it's not going to tolerate them anymore. (laughs) A little tongue-in-cheek there, right? Of course, tolerance is quite the subject matter in our culture even today. And what do we mean, actually, what does the world, what does the culture mean when it speaks of the virtue of tolerance? Well, it doesn't mean what it used to mean 50 years ago. What tolerance, the new tolerance, if you will, means today is nothing less than unqualified, unconditional affirmation of every belief and every action. That's what the world means when they speak of tolerance. And so the question that I want to begin with this morning as we look into the Word of God is can or should followers of Jesus be tolerant in that way? Should Christians be tolerant in the sense of unqualified, unconditional affirmation 
uh, that every belief and action, should we be tolerant in that way? I think Jesus, in his fourth letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor, I think he answers that question this morning with a resounding no. A resounding no. And the bottom line is this. We, as followers of Christ, cannot be tolerant of all things because God himself, Christ himself, is not tolerant of every thought and of every action. Certainly, those of us who are parents, have been parents, want to be parents, maybe those of us who have been parents, we can understand this simple concept. Because a good parent is not one who indiscriminately approves of every single behavior or action of their children, right? Right, that's a good, that's a good parent, right? And so, for instance, if you see them playing in the middle of a, of a busy street... What does the good parent say? Does a good parent say, Oh, who am I to judge? Yeah. <laughs> who am I to judge? Of course not. Or do we respond when they say, Mommy, I'm going to go take a bath now. Okay, honey, that's great. And as they're running up the stairs with a toaster oven, do we say, Well, to each his own, right? To each his own. I want you, honey, to grow up to think for yourself. Is that what we say? Of course not. That's ludicrous. Right? Neither must the church of Jesus Christ respond with this sort of tolerance to things Jesus is himself intolerant over. Friends, the church of Christ cannot condone what Jesus himself condemns. And so we see in the fourth letter to the seven churches what Jesus has to say to a group of Christians within a local church that is tolerant in the the way the world sees it. Unconditionally approving of every belief and every action. What does Jesus have to say to these types of Christians? Well, we'll see, starting in verse 18, as the character of Jesus is highlighted in these letters. We see this time and time again. Jesus begins his letter to each particular church by highlighting something of himself that that particular church in that particular circumstance needs to know. And so what does a church that is tolerating errant theology, errant teaching, and immoral behavior What do they need to know about their King Jesus? Well, we see in verse 18, Jesus writes, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And so what do we know about this little church in the city of Thyatira? Well, when you begin to dig around, you find out that this city, this ancient city in modern-day Turkey of Thyatira, really is quite unimpressive. Um, Compared to the other churches and the other cities uh, that they reside in, this church, there's not much that really stands out. This is the, the least important and the least impressive city of the seven churches. Yet, ironically, when you look at the text, it gets the longest letter. This was an industrial city. 
And so think of this city as a blue-collar town with hard-working people that had jobs uh, using their hands. In fact, that's really the only thing that stands out about this city is that it was industrial, it was blue-collar, and it was known for, if anything, that it had uh, the greatest number of trade guilds. A trade guild in the first century was sort of like a trade union in the 21st century, right? A bunch of workers, and they get together, and uh, they, they work together, and, and, they, and they coalesce together. And there were several, many trade guilds in the city of Thyatira. In particular, the city was known for producing, ironically, bronze. Have we heard that in Jesus' words? Bronze and leather goods and pottery. Does Jesus mention pottery in this, in this letter? Yes, he does. Interestingly enough. And so here's the deal with these trade guilds. They may seem sort, of, seem sort of innocent enough. But we know history teaches us that each trade guild, let's say there was a guild of, of metal workers, and you belonged to the guild of metal workers, that each guild had its own patron deity. That is, they had their own particular god that they worshipped and sacrificed to in order to gain that deity's favor. And so if you were in the trade guild, if you were in the trade union, you were expected to participate in the worship of that particular deity, which often involved, as we have said before, the sacrificing of idol, uh, of meat, uh, the animals and the eating of meat and worship to this God, as well as sexual immorality. And so picture yourself as a Christian in first century Thyatira. Would that pose a problem to you if you were in the metal workers guild? I would think so. And so Christians in this city, this church that Jesus writes to, they had a bit of a problem. They can worship the false gods and commit sexual sin, or they could obey Jesus and likely suffer financially. And what would they do? Well, there was one particular woman who was a false prophet who said that they should do the latter, the former, excuse me, that, that it was okay for them to worship these patron gods. It was okay for them to participate in the sexual immorality that was involved in that. That was Okay, and we'll get to that in a moment. Three aspects of Jesus' character are highlighted here. Number one, what is the title of Jesus in this letter? Did you catch it? These are the words of the what? The Son of God, right? And we as Christians are sort of inoculated against this sort of language. Jesus is the Son of God. But for these Christians who live in a City and in a culture where the idol Zeus was commonly called the Son of God, and the emperor who was often worshipped, the Roman emperor, the king who was often worshipped and often called himself the Son of God, for Jesus to say to these Christians, No, I am the true Son of God, would have meant something to them. He says, I'm the true Son of God. Listen to my words. Second, he says, my eyes are like blazing fire. Simple question, what do we do with our eyes? Well, we see with them, of course, right? And so the question is, what was Jesus seeing in this church? What does Jesus see in our church? 
Well, he has eyes, yes, but these eyes are like blazing fire, meaning that he is the all-seeing one. He has incisive insight. He has penetrating insight. That, that, that what he sees, his eyes are ablaze when he sees sin within his church. Maybe you've heard the expression, maybe uh, your son or daughter might say to you if you're a mother, you know, she has eyes on the back of her head. What does that child mean? Well, the child means that I can't get away with anything, right? That mom seems to know everything, right? That's sort of the image here. Jesus says, I have eyes that are all seen and I blaze against sin. Not only that, but the third thing, Jesus says, he reminds this church that his feet are like what? That his feet are like burnished, purified, strong bronze. And I think the point in these two images is this. Not only does Jesus see the deeds of his church with his all-pervasive eyes, but he can do something about it with his feet, right? With his pure and strong feet. He can take action with what he sees. And so together, Jesus tells his church that he sees all, he's able, and he's willing to judge their actions if they are out of line with his kingship. But before he confronts this church with that which he sees, which he is not pleased with, he commends the church in verse 19. Jesus says, I know your deeds. Often in these letters, this is Jesus' opening way of simply saying, I know what's going on. I know what you're doing. What is it that Jesus knows? What deeds does he highlight? I know your deeds. He says, your love and faith, your service and your perseverance. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. And so four praiseworthy actions of this church, Jesus sees and he commends. The first one is their love. Did you see that in the text? The first thing that Jesus commends is that this was a loving church. Now, you may remember a few weeks ago that the first church in the city of Ephesus, what was it that Jesus condemns them for? They had lost their first Love, right? Well, that wasn't a problem in this church. No, this church genuinely loved one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. I think it's safe to say they likely um, genuinely loved the unbelievers outside their church doors. This was a church marked by love. Secondly, this was a church marked by faith. And I take that to mean that this was a gospel-believing church that they had faith in Jesus as the Savior of the world, that they had repented of their, of their sin and, and trust in self, and that they had believed that Jesus died for their sins, that he lived the perfect life that they could never live. They believed that he rose from the dead, and that he offers eternal life, new life, reconciliation with God, new creation, through faith and faith alone. This was a, a gospel church. They had faith. And so Jesus says, well done, church. You love well. Well done, church. You get the gospel right. What's the third thing? He commends them for their service. That is, they cared for one another. They cared for those outside the walls in tangible ways. And so not only that, but notice number four. He commends them for their perseverance. That is, when the going gets tough, they get going, right? They don't, they don't give up. 
when the culture is against them. They keep on going in their faith. And so you could say that they had an upward, an inward orientation. They loved one another. They had an upward orientation. They got the gospel right. They had an outward orientation. They, this was a church that served others in, in need in the community. And they had an onward orientation. They just kept going. And so this is a good church, right? We, this is what Jesus, we want Jesus to say this about our church, do we not? These are, this is a commendable church. So far, this is an A-plus grade. And so we need to begin to think about our own lives. It's, would Jesus commend us as individual Christians? And would Jesus commend us as a church for these four characteristics? Would he say of Grace Bible Church that we are doing more than we did at first? Is there growth? Is there improvement? I wonder if Jesus would say this about us. Would, would he say that we, that, that you, brother or sister in Christ, that your love for the, the, the saints is growing? Or is it waning? Are you spending more time with your brothers and sisters in Christ or less time with them? Are you calling them when they miss church more often or less often? What about your faith and your perseverance? Would Jesus say it's growing? That your trust in Him, your perseverance and your faith is growing? Is your trust in the goodness of God increasing? Or is it decreasing? Are your, are your doubts growing? Or are you pushing into the promises of God? What about your service? Your outward orientation towards other people? Are you spending more time or less time serving within the confines of the church? Are you tangibly serving somebody other than you and your family? Are you tangibly serving other people? Are you growing in your faith? Or are you maybe stagnating? Could it be that, that you sort of settle into a comfortable groove? Or maybe you're even slipping backwards and, and you're diminishing in your zeal for Christ and your devotion for His cause. And so Jesus looks at this church and says, you're doing better than what you were. Well done. You love people well. You got the gospel right. You're, you're trying to get your hands dirty in people's lives. You're persevering. Well done, church. This is an A-plus report card, right? And yet... Just like in every student's report card, math, A+, plus, science, A+, plus, English, A+. Plus. But then there's one little slot left. And when you get down to that little slot, well, the grade's not going to be an A or a B or maybe not even a C. Because Jesus has really a main criticism, and we see it starting in verse 20. Nevertheless, he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate. This church, Jesus says, is a tolerant church. And let me ask you something. Does he commend them for it? Or does he condemn them for it? He's not pleased that they tolerate things within the body. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Notice, Jesus' primary criticism is that this church was too tolerant. But if, if in our day, if you were to ask the person on the street, if a church is tolerant, would they say, great? Or would they say, oh, that's bad? And so the values of the world and the values of our, 
our Savior often are in conflict, as we see here. Because this church, though, what was the first thing, remember, that Jesus commends them for? You're a loving church, right? They loved people within the body and without. And that is good. But their love was undiscerning. Their love was blindly affirming. That is to say that they had, as our culture often does, mistake tolerance for love. Let me say that again. They had mistaken tolerance for love. Because the world says that love equals unconditional affirmation. Does it not? If you love me, you will tolerate my life. And by that, the world means you will affirm it. You'll tolerate my life. You'll agree with my choices. You'll agree with my identity. You'll agree with my behavior. And if you don't, then what? Are you a loving person? No. You are unloving. But Jesus says to this church that their tolerance of theological error and sin within the confines of the church was actually loving or unloving? Unloving, right? He says, that kind of tolerance is actually unfaithfulness to me, and it is actually unloving to the people that you are so-called tolerating, right? Who was it that they were tolerating? Well, he says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, that name likely rings a bell, because she was sort of the epitome of the wicked a woman in the Old Testament. She was the evil wife of King Ahab in Israel's northern kingdom. And she was bad, 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 bad. She brought idolatry into the land. She brought gross sexual immorality into God's old covenant people. You may remember that she went after God's prophet, right? To kill him. She was a, a bad woman. And, and what, what happened? Do you remember how God judged her? He took her life in a rather grotesque way. And if you want to find it out, go look it up in the Old Testament, right? God judged her. And he says, you have church someone who's doing similar things in the midst of your congregation. This woman likely was telling God's church you can be involved in the idolatry of the dead. It doesn't matter. You can sacrifice that to that God. Who cares? You can go and have sex with a temple prostitute. Who cares? You can do that. It's fine. And this church did what with that woman? Just kind of push her, just, you know, just kind of put her back and close our ears and kind of pretend that we don't know what's going on. They tolerated that. Was Jesus pleased with their toleration? No, of course not. Notice she was a self-proclaimed prophet. She calls herself a prophet. She promoted worldliness in the church. What is worldliness? Well, one pastor and author, David Wells, defines it this way. He said, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Part of that. That's what worldliness is. We know if we are a worldly church, a Grace Bible church, if sin in our lives looks normal, and if righteousness stands out, we're in a bad place. That's worldliness. That's what she was trying to do. And so he threatens uh, judgment 
against those who were following her. It's a threat. But Jesus promises judgment upon her. And there's a difference. He says, I promise I'm going to take care of this. But those of you who are following her, uh, you have time to repent. But this is a threat. Verse 21. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Friends, God is gracious in giving sinners time to turn from our ways. God is patient. The image in the Old Testament of God's patience is that he is long-nosed. I'm not talking about Pinocchio. He's long-nosed. His nose gets red, hot, angry very slowly. He is patient. He gave her time to repent. She would not. Verse 22, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will take, I will make those who commit adultery with her. And that could be literal adultery or sort of spiritual, figurative adultery. Or both. I will make those who commit adultery with her, those who are listening, those Christians who are listening to her, suffer intensely. Unless they repent of their ways. There's still time for her followers. But if not, what does he promise to those followers? He calls them her children. I will strike her children dead. Is, does Jesus care about those who teach wrongly in his church? Yes or no? Does he care about what we do with our bodies as Christians? Yes or no? Clearly he does. He's not messing around. In fact, this is kind of divine sarcasm, I think, in in the lips of Jesus. It's like he's saying to her in particular, he's saying, you like being in bed so much, tongue in cheek, you like being in bed so much, I'm going to, here's a bed you can hop onto, a bed of suffering. This is sarcasm from King Jesus. He says, if you want to enjoy the pleasures of sin, you can also enjoy the consequences of sin. Next, we see the reason why he threatens to respond in such a way. He wants to make an example of her. Notice. Then, verse 23, all the churches, not just that one, not just the church in Thyatira, all the churches, Ephesus, Pergamum, Laodicea, Christ Bible Church. All then all the churches will know what? Okay. So if Jesus brings judgment upon this professing Christian because of her unrepentant sin, what is the lesson that he wants his church to know? Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. Jesus had eyes that were like what? Blazing fire. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. His feet were burnished bronze. He threatens to make an example of this church. When I was in high school, uh, I think it was my sophomore year, we got a new athletic director who happened to be our new high school football coach. And he was... Really disciplined. <laughs> he was uh, very strict, and so he implemented a system uh, in which you know these were the expectations. You would be to practice on time. You would you would do this. You would have that. Right. This is how you will respond. And, and just sort of all these stipulations. Right. And if you didn't, he implemented a SWAT system. And I'm not talking about the cops, right? The kind with the paddle. And it goes on the rear end, right? 
Um, I don't know if you can get away with that today, but that happened. And so, um, and so needless to say, we were all scared of the paddle. And so we wanted to conform, right? And I remember the first guy who got a swap for, I don't know, but the first guy. Coach brought him into his office and shut the door, and we're praying for him. Yeah, we probably weren't, but it should have been. And, uh, and we hear this smack, right, and this whimper. And by the way, this guy was a football player who was like 275 pounds, big guy. In other words, he's a tough dude, right? Like if I went in there, he would have broken me, you know? But this guy is tough. He's a big dude. And we're like, okay, let's, you know, never seen this guy cry. And he comes out of that office with just a tear and he's holding it back. And it put the fear of coach in us, I promise you, right? In a, in a similar way, Jesus says, then, then all the churches will know that I am the king of kings. And so a couple applications here as we close out, get to the end of our letter. Um, number one, we must not tolerate false teachers within the church or unrepentant sin. That seems to be the obvious application. The leaders of this church did not want to confront it. They hoped likely it would just go away. They hoped that maybe she would stop teaching those things. But we must be diligent as a congregation to not let the leaven of false teaching or false living permeate the body. Number two, we must not buy into the, the culture's definition of tolerance. We've talked about that already. Affirming everything, condemning nothing, which as the uh, uh, Christian author G.K. Chesterton remarked, he says, tolerance is the virtue of those who don't believe in anything. Okay? We must not be like that. Yes, we should be tolerant in the old definition of things. We should listen to different ideas. We should weigh them in the balance of Scripture. We should be respectful and kind and loving to all people God made in God's image. image. But we cannot give unconditional affirmation to everything. That's what the church was doing. Dr. D.A. Carson writes, Christians who attempt to be faithful to the Bible are bound to be upheld by certain truths. Truths that remain true whether anybody believes them or not. Truths that are bound up with the gospel. Truths that cannot be sacrificed on the altar of the great goddess of relativism. And so how should the church respond, those who are not caught up in this sin? Verse 24, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, read air quotations, I will not impose any other burden on you, except to hold on to what you have until I come. Jesus says, to the rest of you, you're doing good. You're not involved in idolatry. You're not involved in sexual immorality. Keep going. You're doing fine. I really don't have anything else to say to the rest of you in the church. Keep going. Great job. But notice, there's a little bit of insight into what this woman was teaching. Did you catch it? In verse 24, he says that those of you who, who haven't learned, and this is what he calls what this woman was teaching Satan's so-called deep secrets. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on here, but my best guess is that this teacher was saying, I've got some new information for you. I've got some new revelation for you. I've, I've got some deep truths that only I and those who are involved with me know. And so why don't you come learn them? Friends, by way of application, beware of teachers who claim to provide access 
to extra knowledge, not available to the rest of the Christian world. Beware of peddlers of so-called deep truths, of uncoverers of new mysteries. Beware, as my seminary professor once said repeatedly, of, uh, of a particular doctrine. If it's new, it's likely heresy. And I think that's a pretty good doctrine. So, what is Jesus' promise to those who overcome this sort of worldly tolerance? Verse 26. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. So notice, <clears throat> from the outset here, Jesus defines the one who is victorious as the one who does my will to the end. Likely to the end of their life, or more likely, to, to when Jesus returns. And so what does it mean to be victorious? It means to submit to Jesus' will. You see that? You want, to be, you want to have a victorious Christian life? You don't need new insight. You need to submit to King Jesus. That's how it is to be a victorious Christian. The first promise is he promises believers authority in his coming kingdom. Here he cites a portion of Psalm 2, which speaks prophetically about Jesus' future, rule, literal, earthly, on this planet, over all the nations. Remarkably, this is the only time that Psalms, Psalm 2 is quoted in regards to Christians. That's remarkable. Many times we, we, we learn that Jesus will rule over the nations. But now we learn that and in other places too. But that we as his followers, we will participate in that. So just chew on that for a while. It's astounding. The second promise is this. And this is the best promise of all. He promises himself. He promises himself. I will also give that one the morning star. Now we know that Jesus is talking about himself. Because if you get all the way to the end of Revelation, like we'll do two years or so, in 2216... In 22 to 16, Jesus says, I will also give that one the morning star. He's speaking of, uh, no, no, excuse me. He says that he calls himself the bright morning star. In other words, Jesus says, if you overcome, guess what you get? Yeah, ruling the nations is going to be great. But guess what's even better? Me. You'll get me. And then the letter ends with a call for us to listen. Verse 29. Whoever has ears, you all got ears? I hope so. Whoever has ears, then what should we do with them? Let them hear. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because hearing is not the same as listening, as your wife may say. Hearing is not the same as listening. There's a gentleman by the name of Mark Patterson. <clears throat> and he is the PA announcer for a soccer club in Ireland. It's not real football, by the way. A soccer club in Ireland. Real football, we know it's quite huge. So, Mark Patterson. Sorry, I'm probably sorry. Mark Patterson, he is the PA announcer at the Derry City Soccer Stadium in Ireland. And he tells a story of once he was uh, doing a game, and it was about like halftime. I don't know if the soccer even has halftime. Real sports have halftime. Football. Halftime. <laughs> I'm digressing. Halftime. And he got this note, like, hey, there's a car blocking the exit, so here's the license plate number, you know, say. And so he read it, license plate number, et cetera, YZ, or whatever. 
please would you move your car? A few minutes went by and nobody moved it. And so he got that word again from the, the boss. Hey, say it again. And so he said it again. And this happened several times. And so the game was drawn to a near. Some of the fans uh, of the visiting team were trying to get out of the stadium. And the, there was a car that was impeding them. And so he was, of course, frustrated. And so he did it one final time. And then it dawned on him. <laughs> the numbers he had been calling out were his own license plate numbers. He had parked there. He was the annoying delinquent who needed to move his vehicle. And so <laughs> he learned an important lesson that day, and a, and a, a lesson that, that, that really Jesus ends this letter with for a reason. <laughs> Hearing is not the same as listening. And so friends, we can hear the words of Christ, but are we listening? Will we obey? Will we heed the Spirit's words to the church? I'm going to pray and ask the worship team to come, and we're going to sing a closing song in response. So would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you that sometimes your word to us, it can seem harsh, it can seem unkind, it can seem certainly contrary to our culture. And yet we humbly submit ourselves to your word and to the words of your son, Jesus, knowing that he is the son of God, the only one worthy of our obedience. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us what it means to be truly tolerant in the biblical sense and to be blatantly intolerant in our own lives and in the life of our church. We recognize that your words to us are for our good. And so teach us, we pray, through you. And help us to know that we can only be victorious because of the blood of the Lamb, the one who died to cover all of our sins. And if we turn and trust in Him, Him alone, that we can be saved and transformed by our gospel. And Lord, we can then live out our lives as Christians with Him living in us. And so we pray towards that end. And God's people say, let's stand this way.